Good morning. Let me start off by thanking you for getting your questions into us uh, fairly early. Our university expert couldn't be here today, but you got him in early enough that she was able to give me what I hope is at least some of the information about dealing with universities that you were after. I'm not advancing. We'll now make the technology work. There we are. Here are the two specific university questions that you submitted. Let me take the second one on this slide first. Most of the inquiries to the MIT technology office, and also I would assume it's a similar case as the technology transfer offices of practically every other university, come from faculty, postdocs, and graduate students who've been related to and have invented IP technology that's probably owned by the university and has to be licensed through some type of technology transfer office at the university. There's a lot less inquiry from undergraduates because as a rule, they aren't in a situation where the university acquired ownership of what they were doing. So they own their own IP and they don't need to worry about a license that involves the university. There's also obviously a third group people outside of the university. If you look at the MIT materials, and frankly, you look at the materials at other universities, you'll see they get a lot of inquiries of people who are interested in licensing technology from MIT, from Caltech, from Stanford, that they've learned about. Many universities, and I believe MIT is one of them, doesn't really spend, try to license technology that came in from the outside. It tries to license and distribute and make commercial and known its own technology, stuff that it's developed inside. Let's go back to the first question. You're dealing, you're in a research lab. I'm assuming that the technology that you and the other people working with you in that lab have developed is owned by the university. And you're properly concerned about the consequences if you begin the process too late. From the university's point of view, if you're interested in licensing the technology, the IP that comes out of your lab, start talking to your technology licensing office fairly quickly. Start talking to them when, frankly, what you developed has been developed to the point where it's ready to be disclosed. It's no longer simply an embryonic idea or a concept, but you basically figured out, gee, this is how we might be able to do this. And do it early. One of the reasons to get to the university early is the same reason you want to get this process running early in any situation, you've got to basically get to a patent application before you're planning to make any disclosure. 
disclosed to the university. Typically, that's done on a form that different places may call an invention disclosure or a report of invention disclosure. You submit it to the tech transfer office. Often doing this in conjunction with the people who are really running your laboratory, maybe your PI. If you're one of the inventors, the technology licensing office will get back to you after they've received your submission. If they don't, take the steps, reach out to them, and make sure they know that you're interested in advancing and licensing this technology, and you'll want to start the discussion. One thing you do have to remember is that in a lot of labs, the work is funded by some type of sponsored funds, either government or somewhere in industry. And the sponsor may have the first rights, particularly if it comes out of an industry, much less often in the government, to negotiate a license for that IP because it will have rights that are probably ahead of any of yours. But it's also true that a lot of sponsors may not be interested in licensing their option rights. So it's worth talking to your principal investigator or perhaps to the technology license office or say at a place like MIT, the Office of Sponsored Research that gets involved in the arrangements between those who sponsor research and the MIT laboratories and talk to them about what the situation is, whether the technology is available for licensing or whether it might become available for you and the university to license out. Let me expand on this a little. I mentioned, I think at the opening and close of the last session, that unlike what we've been talking about for most of the last six months, you need to remember that you've got four interests involved when you start working with a university licensing office. You clearly have the university. You clearly have whoever paid for the work. You clearly have the inventor. And the inventor may or may not be the same as the person that you hope is eventually going to license it. These people may have very different views on timing. Inventor may have to get a thesis published. Whoever paid for the work might want to keep anything secret for as long as they can. Your PI wants to write a paper. Potential licensee probably wants to get the business developed to at least some degree before it starts making too public what's it's doing. What are the consequences if you start too late? The biggest risk is probably that what you've been doing will somehow become prior art. You usually have a year in the US after you make your first disclosure, and you have to take the term disclosure very broadly. It's not limited to something you put in the New York Times. But if you make any non-confidential disclosure, and we've talked about this before, that may mean you have no chance of getting a patent on that in the rest of the world. And there's also a risk that I expect I raised before, is don't assume you're the only person working on this idea. Somebody else may be and may want to get their patent. And if they file first, 
and they didn't get the idea from you, they will be first in line. That you may have invented first simply doesn't matter anymore. Another thing that you and any company you want to start or any licensee who wants to license this technology you need to think about is what else should you be doing other than perhaps working towards that let's get it filed patent application. You're probably out attracting investors. The university will license technology and it may have some leads for investors but just as when no university is involved, finding people who will invest their money into what this, you're going to do and probably your company is going to do is a major concern that you have to start dealing with early. If you put your team together, I mentioned probably way back in the first lecture that that's one of the more important things that a potential investor will look for. What about a business plan? Business plan is important because among other things, it will inform you and you'll then be able to talk to both the university and to potential investors about how you see the let's get rich market really is. It's good to be doing this simultaneous with all the other things you have to do. You're going to be busy. Finally, since the university is involved here, spend some time trying to figure out what are the policies and practices of the university you're dealing with. There's an awful lot of information online. I've looked at and spent some going through what MIT, the University of Chicago, and Stanford have online. If you're any university that has a real research program and a technology transfer office that you may be involved with is going to have its policies too. If they're not online, go talk to somebody about them. But basically, you do need to know what their policies are going to be to much better inform what you are going to be able or how you're going to be able to work with them and what type of arrangement you're likely to come up with. One of the slides in the last session referred to what are called AUTM, which is the Association of University Transfer Managers. And particularly, it referred to what they call their nine points. They're nine points that, in their view, a university, so it's from the university's point of view, should consider when licensing. They're worth reading because they will give you a better idea than you probably now have of what you would expect. For example, they talk about what rights a university is likely to reserve. Its own use, government organizations, other nonprofits, and they have a lot of potential license provision suggestions that someone may well put into a license with a university that you're going to be presented and asked to sign. One other thing they talk about, and I won't go too far, the two out of the nine is plenty, is will the final licensee have access to improvements? That can have a real effect on that licensee because particularly if work, research work and development work is going to continue in the university lab, the person who licensed the initial university work is going to be very interested in whether they'll be able to continue to license 
improvement, new developments that come out of the lab. And the AUTM nine points have some examples of those also. Got a lot of questions from you on what I refer to and I've kind of grouped as practical problems. And these are clearly not limited to situations when you're dealing with the university. The first one is what do you do? You've got a company, you've got a patent that is directed to what you've brought, your product is, it's been around for 10 or so years, and lo and behold, somebody else gets a patent, a competitor gets a patent, that as this question says, clearly conf conflicts with mine. I guess the first question I have here is what is the conflict? Because remember the starting point, patents don't infringe patents. As a rule, patents don't conflict with each other. What conflicts with a patent is something that potentially infringes it. So what's this conflicting patent conflict about? Is the conflict that the new patent seems to cover what your company has been doing for 10 years? If that's the case, that new patent is probably invalid. Though, as we've talked about before, you could spend a lot of time and money trying to prove that if they decide to sue you anyway. But what you've been doing before, what your patent, 10-year-old one, talks about is prior art. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if the recently granted patent just never talked about it. It wasn't found in any search. It wasn't found by the examiner. Is it that the new patent covers something that you'd like to do to improve your product? That makes it tougher. That leads you to having to make some choices. If you think that patent is a new patent is a problematic problem, can you avoid it? Can you figure a way to improve your product without using that patent's ideas? Or are you gonna to have to at least think about Let's make a deal. Problem with let's make a deal is that raises your head so everybody knows that you're now there. Is the conflict that this new patent, if you did, but more precisely, that if this new com competitor did what its patent describes, they'd infringe your patent, this switches the advantage back to you and creates some opportunities. You might be able to get them to stop if that's important to maintaining your market, though, as we've said, it takes a lot of time, can take a lot of time, money, and effort, or that may give you the way to get any license that you need on a cross-license structure if you want to be able to use what their patent covers. If what you're gonna do infringes that relatively new patent, there are ways to attack it in the US Patent Office that I adverted briefly to. But there's limits to what the patent office will look at when it's taking a second look at a patent that's already granted. It'll look at paper, but if your best prior art is what you've really been doing, it typically will not. And you also need to ask yourself the question, are they challenging me yet? Are they likely to challenge me yet? Or should I just not stir up this hornet's nest? 
the last two questions on this slide get back to something we've talked about before, which is what can you do about patenting software? And I'll admit I had to look up what is natural language processing. And for any of you out there who like me didn't know, what Wikipedia says is it's a subfield of computer science and some other things I don't know much about, information engineering and artificial intelligence concerned with interactions between computers, excuse, human, paren, natural, close paren, language. Where do you find it? According to Wikipedia again, you'll find it in speech recognition and a number of other areas. In terms of how do you, can you patent an application concept using natural language processing, or frankly, as the latter, last question puts it, essentially patentable computer code, a few things we've talked about that you do need to keep in mind. First off, remember you can always copyright code, and you can always copyright the code that you use for this natural language processing. The question is, is that going to do you much good? Because as you well know, copyright only protects against copying. It doesn't prevent anybody from developing anything on their own. And the extent to which they can use your old ideas in developing their new programs is still pretty much in the air. A few lectures ago, I referred to the ongoing litigation regarding APIs between Google and Oracle. I think I remembered to say that that's now at the Supreme Court, at least to the extent the Supreme Court is deciding whether to take it. Hopefully they will take it and they may straighten out exactly what can you do in terms of protecting software if somebody's copied it. What about patenting? We talked about it, and patenting software in the US is more than a little bit iffy. If your software makes a computer run better, makes it able to do something that it now can't, or at least can't do very well, you probably are going to be able to get a patent. If, on the other hand, you've simply recognized that you need to do something, and say, okay, I can use a general purpose computer to do this, your chances of getting patent, at least in the US, aren't very good. They are better in other countries, which may affect a number of your business decisions. The outcome on can you patent computer code, patent a con, can never really patent a concept, it's gotta be the realization is very, very fact-dependent. One question that I would ask back to whoever put in these two questions, first one is how is the fact that you want to use natural language processing make this different from using any other type of processing? How and with respect to both of them, what are the keys 
to your processing or to your code, what is there about them that is really the most important and that you might want to focus on when you're trying to figure out how you're going to weave your way through this thicket of what is or is not potentially patentable? Three more questions. First one happens all the time. Somebody at one company decides to want to get out on their own and start another one. And they want, frankly, to continue to work in the same general field because that's where they have expertise. Well, the problems in this situation may go well beyond exactly what that one molecule defined in the company's patent or patent application, it's not clear of the status, is. Is, and what, frankly, will that patent potentially cover? You can be fairly sure that particularly once they learn you want to compete with them, perhaps, your present company is going to do its best of processing, getting its now filed patent to have claims that aren't limited to that one molecule. Can they get claims? Will they be able to get claims that cover what your family of molecules want to do? Is the fact that their one molecule is a species within a much more generic family, how does that disqualify the gene, a patentable genus? A genus usually is not patentable if any part of it is old, so you're gonna to have to write the claim yourself to other specific molecules in this. And probably most important, is your current employer gonna think you stole anything? Are you subject to a non-competition agreement? It gets beyond just the patents. Let's turn to searching. What's the distinction between prior art searching and freedom to operate searching? Short answer, there are different types of searches that look for different things. Prior art searching is usually fairly short and sweet. It typically focuses on what is the new idea that you come up with that you hope is patentable. And it hopefully gives you some insight into what patent you might be able to get. Freedom to operate has nothing to do with what you might be able to patent. What it wants to look at is you, will you be able to use your technology without running in to somebody else's patent. Freedom to operate is clearly important to any investors. It's probably the most important thing to many of them. But also may be important to a university tech transfer office. They have to decide where they're going to put their efforts, money, and staff. They're rarely in a situation to pick up and try to license every idea that comes into them. 
So they're going to make some evaluation, just like an investor will, of what are the chances of this technology being really useful and used in a significant marketplace. Frankly, their insight into that may affect your thoughts as to how good is this market you've been hoping to get into really going to be? What's going to be the likely return from it? When you're dealing with a university technology office, ask them, how much prior art searching do you do? How do you do it? You may feel that you want to do some more on your own because there's unless you know exactly what they're doing, may not be directed to precisely the type of product that you're going to be interested in, or it may not have had the time, and it can take a lot of time to do a decent search, and nobody really, usually, or at least as a rule, has that time. Where should it look? Do they do any freedom of operation searching at all? Often, I understand, they do not. They leave that to you. And it obviously, your investors will also want the answer to that question. And it's also to be absolutely fair to anybody who's doing freedom to operate searching. When all you have is an idea, it's really hard to do a useful freedom to operate search. The product that the new company is likely going to end up selling or using is not yet fully defined, not really yet fully developed. And beyond that, even if it were, it's a really big job to be sure that everything that you do to make that product isn't covered by some patent owned by somebody else either. In many ways, universities and investors are looking for about the same thing. Will the technology have a large market? From the university's point of view, how much money they make is to some extent secondary. They rarely get into a deal that really gives them a lot of money. Most of them really don't. If you look at their statistics, they'll tell you that and they put those statistics out. But they do want to have the technology go somewhere where it'll be useful to the world and perhaps do some good. Investors, on the other hand, are much more interested in the bottom line, what money is this technology likely to enable us to make? Unlike universities, that's really all they care about. Universities, on the other hand, have to keep an awful lot of people happy, the inventors, the people who run the labs, companies that invest money and distribute to those labs, to say nothing of the people who know of how much money is this technology transfer office giving back to the university? Is it enough to justify their being? To say nothing at the bottom of the line, they have to keep happy the people who eventually are going to license and pay for the license to use the technology. Last slide as of the moment. I've kind of entitled it, why get into IP? Why do you enter the field? What are the favorite parts of it? When do you decide whether to go into IP law? 
Well, let me start off with my understandings of why the university technology transfer lawyer did any of this. She didn't get into IP directly. She started off as a transactional lawyer, with, as I recall, it was with a big Boston law firm, dealing with agreements between, typically between various companies of various sizes. She was lucky enough that many of the people she was representing were startups and new companies. And she got into this earlier in her career and found that she, frankly, like I, really enjoyed working with this types of clients. Eventually, she moved into university work. And as I think she told us last time, she'd worked for two universities, I believe it was Chicago and the University of Massachusetts, before she started working for MIT and found these universities, they centered on research programs, and she liked working on that background to the deals she was working with because the projects themselves, in addition to simply what were the terms of the agreements between the universities and the potential licensees, they were fun. They were interesting. Like a lot of us who came into this, she was lucky. She kept moving into areas that she liked, and it worked out a way in a way that for her was very good. Before I give you the why I did, let me just ask, we have any questions that have come in? Yes, we have. Let's try them. You ready? Yep. Let's see, so we have 15. 15? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, you may have to stick around a few let's minutes. Let's see. Uh, so, some of them are very specific to the last lecture, so we will see what we can do. Okay. Uh, the last lecture guest speaker mentioned the nine points to consider in licensing university technology paper from AUTM. Yep. It was published in 2007. Is there an updated version? I looked at that yesterday. It's now on their website. I couldn't tell whether it was updated. My guess is it hasn't been substantially changed. But as I said a few minutes ago, it's well worth reading to see what the 10 to 15 universities that are part of this group have come up with in terms of what they think collectively, and maybe more some than others, is important when you're on the university side thinking about what should I spend time, money, and effort trying to license. Absolutely. Uh, point, from point three in the AUTM paper, it seems universities can sell multiple rights of the same invention at different stages. Say that again? Uh, from point three in the AUTM paper. Which I don't paper, have in front of me. It seems universities can sell multiple rights of the same invention at different stages of in-house development at the university. Is that correct? Please clarify. Uh, I think that is correct. Remember, they control this. They own this. So they, they have full control over how they're going to license this and to whom they're going to license it and at what stage. The hope, and I think it's real at most universities, mm -hmm. is that they're going to do this in a way that is consistent with what the people who develop the technology want to do and how they plan, hopefully, to make use of it. One of the things that gets mentioned a lot is fields of use. How broadly is it going to be used? 
a basic idea may be useful in a lot of different types of businesses. And it may well be if you're the inventor or the lab that came up with this technology, you're focused on one particular field of use. A university is going to be interested and also licensing it and frankly getting revenue out of other types of businesses. So in this situation, they quite reasonably will limit your license to the field of use that you're really going to develop. They'll undoubtedly give you some penumbra around that to permit you to move around, but they do want to be free, particularly if you don't expand into some other area, to license out the technology so it will be used in that other area and hopefully help the university's coffers. Is there a time limit on how long university allows the licensee to deploy the licensed tech in commercial use from the day it officially acquires the license? There are typically two time limits. The first time limit is the one you'd expect Mm -hmm. because the most university licenses, at least the ones that I've seen, run for the life of the patents. Okay. So that's probably typically 20 years from the time the first patent application was filed. But there are also, and uh, the AUTM nine points talk about this, milestones. Milestones that a licensee has to meet to keep its license, particularly if it wants to keep that license as an exclusive license. Mm -hmm. How do they develop their market? How much money have they managed to get in from investors, et cetera? The list is in those ATUM points. Uh, I am talking to a team from Brigham and Women's regarding an NIH-funded project. Can you walk me through the formal steps I would undertake to obtain the license? Should I ask the project manager of the team to initiate this process, or should I initiate this process with the team consensus? The first thing you need to know is what's a contract with NIH and what's the NIH procedure. Because about 90% of what you've asked may come directly out of knowing what that agreement is. Once you have an idea of what the bounds of that agreement are, you're then going to move to the question of, okay, who owns the IP and who's able to license it? Many government licenses, and I believe this is true of a lot, if not most, NIH licenses, the university can own the IP, but the government always has rights in everything that it paid for. Hope that it basically answered. (laughs) (laughs) In the previous lecture, in express startup licenses, what do you mean by two and a half percent equity, the licensee company, or the financial gains of the piece of licensing tech? Okay. Minor guess here, because I've only been on the uh, licensee side of these transactions. Mm -hmm. Presumably, people are going to invest in the company. Presumably, they are going to get stock interests. The university wants to own 2.5% of that stock, and it wants to own it in a way that it's not going to get diluted as things move forward. Noted. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, in, and this gives a follow-up question. In the previous lecture, in the Express Startup Licenses, does the 1% of success fee sit on top of the 2.5% equity? Slight guess here, my guess is yes. Again, talk to your licensing office so you know exactly what this is going to cost you. And frankly, also keep in mind, as was said last week, 
that it's very important both to you and the university and to the licensee that this thing succeed. No university, if it knows what it's doing, they know, and they basically seem to, is going to make the terms of licensing so onerous that they really reduce the chances for the thing succeeding. You talked about this 1% success fee. If you're really successful, you've got 99%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would it be too costly to patent an IP? Should I be a student or have any sponsor? I think they're asking, would it be too costly? Do you want to agree? No, no, no I'm just think a second. Basically, probably back in about lecture four, we put up some costs on what a patent's applications can cost and what they can cost, particularly if you go around the world. And those are not small numbers. If you work with a university, most of them expect the licensee, which won't necessarily be the inventor, but very likely will be a, a company that the inventor may be part of that is going to use that, pay the patenting costs. And they also, and this may have been mentioned before, they also, the university wants to control the prosecution of those patents, which is particularly important when you're dealing with multiple fields of use because a patent that only covers field of use A really cuts off the university's opportunities to license in B, C, D, and E. Uh, it seems universities get a lot from the license. What if the license IP tech is only a small part of the overall product? How do these previous percentages work then? That is a question that goes far beyond university licenses. The vast majority of licenses that a company will sign talk in terms of some percentage of sales of patented products. What the hell is the definition of a patented product? Is it the chip that goes into a computer or is it the entire computer? Because 1% of a $2 chip is a lot different than 1% of even a cheap laptop. It's a problem because one of the things you run into if you're not very, very careful is what's referred to as stacked royalties. If you're paying Oh, a two or three percent royalty, that's fine. But what if you're paying five of them? Makes a very, very big difference in your cash flow. This is something you have to work through on a case-by-case -case basis. And hopefully, if you're working with a university, and hopefully if you're even working with somebody else that just owns the technology, everybody will realize what the problem is, and you'll come to a solution, which may not be exactly the one that you would like, but it's hopefully one that you can live with. Uh, from the last lecture, universities don't do prior or our due diligence. If I obtain the license and I get sued for patent IP infringement, should the university be solely responsible? No university will be solely responsible. And let's, let me sort out again that IP due diligence. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you've got two kinds of searching. You have the can I get a patent searching and the freedom to operate searching. Universities will do some looking at the can I get a patent searching, frankly, to help decide, as you'll have to decide, whether it's worth spending money to get a patent on this. They won't, as a rule, look at do you have freedom to operate, which is really what your question is directed to. And should they have to pay? They don't have any control over what you'll do with it. If you get a license, very, very rarely 
I'd never tell somebody who's licensing to sign one. Will that license say that, oh, if I take your technology and use it in a way that infringes somebody else's patent, you have to make me whole? Why should the, the person who owns the technology and licenses to take that risk, as opposed to the person who's developed into product and is really making money from the product? The university just won't do it, and most licensors won't do it. Uh, I'm starting to look at a piece of tech from Brigham Women's Hospital. If acquired, this tech is a small piece of my core product. What is the best way I engage in licensing talks? Who owns the technology that's involved? I assume it's Brigham and Women's. You basically are going to have to have a discussion with whoever owns it. You'll probably have to have a discussion if you get past the first door with whatever law firm or lawyers they're working with who's coming up with patent application that would cover it. And they might be willing, or patents that they might be willing to license to, or materials they might be able to want to license to you. Remember, we mentioned last week that material transfers are a big part of this when you get into the type of thing you're talking about. Yeah. And although it's usually fairly cheap to take a non-commercial and just gonna want these materials so I could work with them, when you're talking about commercializing them, it's a very different type of situation. You're, gonna, you're walking right back, frankly, into what we were talking about a little while ago. What if it's only a small part? Is it the chip or the computer? It's got to be negotiated. And you've got to come up with a solution that, frankly, is fair and workable for everybody. And there's no uh, magic way to do it. Yeah. Uh, if the licensee decided not to deploy the IP acquired, will the licensee still need to pay the percent of equity mentioned in the last lecture or renegotiate again? You're typically going to agree to pay the equity before you get a product to the market. If you're not going to deploy it, frankly, you probably don't want to keep the license. So I think you probably want to, one way or another, terminate the license. Whether that termination clause of the license requires you to pay equity depends on exactly how that license is written. It may take you off the hook. It may require you to continue to be on the hook to some extent, or somebody might say, I don't care how you make money, pay me. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, this is a question is if there is, are there any possible tips you could provide to improve the researchability of prior art? Prior art searching is a terrible task. In the US alone, there are now something like, if you go back to the beginning of time, 8 million patents. God knows how many there are abroad. And even God can't tell you how many technical articles there are out there talking about things. There are people Cheap and dirty way is basically to do an awful lot of online work yourself. You know the technology after some playing around, you hopefully will have found the keywords that will surface potential prior art that you may be interested in. There are also companies who make their money doing prior art searches. They've developed a lot of algorithms and a lot of programs and the like to do a job with this. Whether they're worth it for you, Talk to them, find out what they will do and how they will improve over what you might do. 
Also talk to your people. Because if you're working in an area, the chances are fairly good that the people who are working on this project have a fairly good idea of what the background to it was. Mm -hmm. They may not know the specifics that a prior art search would turn up, but they're certainly going to have a general idea of, well, a lot of this is prior art. What have we done above and beyond that? Uh, what if I need to insource a platform into my idea? Should I pay rights? Wouldn't it be too expensive or would it be too expensive? I assume what you're really saying is, okay, I've got the technology, but I also want to use somebody else's platform. I hope you can get it for free. <laughs> My guess is you're going to have to talk to them, whoever owns us about it. Sometimes there are a lot of people who want to put out that type platforms and the like, frankly, almost for free, at least if it's non-commercial and if it's commercial, perhaps on a relatively low price. But you have to work on the assumption that if you need to use somebody else's technology, there's a significant chance you're going to have to pay for it. And let's see, our last question. I was talking to a partner at Wolf Greenfield. Yep. He said a law firm usually does an internal mock trial first to evaluate the validity and viability of an IP filing to the US Patent Office. Is this common practice besides cost? Does this, uh, this approach, besides cost, this approach seems logical. What is your opinion on the matter? Actually, I'm a little surprised to hear that. I've, I've gone and run into a lot of mock trials when we're dealing with infringement situations. I haven't done, and I was at Fisher Richardson for 20 years and then at Wilmer Hale for about 30 years after that. I started its IP department. I don't remember any mock trials on is something patentable. I'd like to know more about what Wolf is doing, because frankly, it's a good outfit. I'd be very interested always in learning more on how people might do things better. I'm not at all surprised that they might have some, let's sit down at lunch and talk about this idea and what do we know about it? Is it potentially patentable? What's the market look like, et cetera? But I don't think I technically call that a mock trial Mock trial, which as I said, is most often done in a, how are we gonna defend this lawsuit? How are we gonna best try it so we win? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, and that is, I believe, let's double check, uh, all the questions we have here. Great, thank you very much. Now let me get back to this last slide. And my answer for this may be a little more philosophical than whoever asked the question really wanted the answer to be. For me, I'd have to start with why would someone who is about to graduate from MIT want to go to law school in the first place? For me, there are a couple of reasons. First off, I was intimidated by how smart so many of the other students at MIT really were. And I probably lost all sense of perspective on where I stood on that curve. I also didn't have any great single area of technology that I really wanted to pursue enough to continue towards a PhD. So I was looking for what else might you do. I was in a cooperative course here at MIT. and There was a lawyer down the hall. This was what, about eight or nine months. And I spent a lot of time talking to him and law sounded interesting. So I decided that let's maybe do something else. I can remember sitting at my desk on something else's, the two obvious ones, or gee, do I want to go to law school or do I want to go to business school? 
Well, I have the two applications in front of me. The business school application wanted 18 essay answers, as I recall. The law school application was three, three by identical three by five cards. I took the easy way out. Having gone to law school, I wanted to be able to at least continue to use the technological learning, and frankly, how do you think about technology that I'd learned at MIT. I will point out at this point, Harvard Law School had in its catalog that we strongly discourage narrow backgrounds such as engineering. Mm-hmm. I disagree with this pretty strongly. I happen to think that a good scientific engineering background is a much better preparation for a lot of the practice of law than, frankly, philosophy. I went to work for Polaroid's patent department when I was in the middle of my first, second year in law school. I liked it, and I stayed on the path ever since. What have I liked the most? Well, I spent a lot of time in infringement suits over probably my last, particularly my last 15 to 20 years at Wilmer. They were interesting, they were challenging, but they're nowhere near, at least I didn't find them anywhere near as challenging or frankly in the real world useful as working with individual inventors and new companies. Just as uh, our university experts said a few minutes ago, looking back, it might have been a good idea for me to have taken advantage of a program that would have given me both a law degree and a B school degree after four years. It cost an extra year, but it took me a long time to realize how important the business side really was to all of this. Favorite part of IP? I'm a fairly strong proponent of the idea that the most worthwhile thing a lawyer can do is not to sue somebody else. What it is is trying to work within the rules that are largely designed so that things might work. Everybody will drive on the right side of the road as opposed to driving wherever the hell they want to. So they typically have some rational basis. And how do you work within them to come out with a result that is hopefully good for everybody who's involved. One of my law school professors, Roger Fisher, wrote a book called Getting to Yes. Getting to Yes, how can IP help me exploit my technology, was my goal when I started putting these sessions together. I hope that at least to some extent I've succeeded and I've been able to give you some sense about how IP can, and frankly, it's not the golden goose, because in some cases it can't help you achieve your goals. After now solid six plus months, let me again thank you all for listening and taking part. Take care.